Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast. An in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 74, The Battle of Eris. Hello everyone, and welcome back. Over the past few episodes, we've stepped away from the battlefields to look at the political and strategic developments at the start of 1917. By the spring, the Great War had taken on a new, distinct shape. The Germans, opting for a defensive strategy on the Western Front, withdrew to the newly formed Hindenburg Line. This decision coincided with a renewed U-boat campaign, aimed at constricting Britain's maritime lifeline. Meanwhile, over in Russia, popular discontent had forced Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate the throne thus ending 300 years of Romanov rule. The U-boat campaign and Tsar Nicholas's abdication paved the way for the United States of America to enter the war. On April 6th, the United States declared war on Germany, thereby ending two and a half years of self-imposed neutrality. The geopolitical movements of early 1917 would set the tone for the remainder of the year. The entry of the United States and unstable situation in Russia, did much to color the strategic decisions of the Entente and Central Powers. But we must not forget that while these developments were taking place, the battlefields had not fallen quiet. For today's episode, we are going to return to the Western Front. The British Expeditionary Force was about to embark on its first major set piece of the new year. This would be the Battle of Arras which took place from April the 9th to May the 16th, 1917. Chronologically, the Battle of Arras falls midway between the Battles of the Somme and Passchendaele. But unlike the Somme or Passchendaele, the Battle of Arras has not fostered the same level of public interest. When it is discussed, it usually serves as a scene-setter for its crowning moment. That crowning moment being the Canadian Corps' capture of the Vimy Ridge. Yet, the Battle of Arras was much more than Vimy-centric studies lead us to believe. Its size, in terms of frontage, material, and manpower, is comparable to those of the Somme and Passchendaele. But despite it lasting just a fraction of the time, Arras was a far deadlier battle, sporting a higher daily loss rate than both the Somme and Passchendaele. The BEF's daily loss rate at Eris was 4,076, compared to 2,943 on the Somme and Passchendaele's 2,323. While the capture of the Vimy Ridge deserves its place in the annals of the Great War, its dominance in the historiography has led it to overshadow events elsewhere, specifically the accomplishments of the British Third Army east of the city. This episode will aim to shed some light on these lesser-known developments. We will start by looking at the strategic context, why the battle was fought, and what the British hoped to accomplish. We'll then take a panoramic view of the battle proper. We will start in the north at Vimy Ridge, move south to Third Army, and then end off with a look at the Australian efforts against Bullecourt. For those interested in following along, I have posted an accompanying map to thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. It is far from perfect, 
but hopefully it makes things a bit more digestible. So let us begin with the strategic background. It will be remembered that the Entente fully planned to resume the general offensive into 1917. These plans were, however, upended by the political shakeups at the end of 1916. In December, Joseph Joffre was dismissed as head of the French army, and David Lloyd George became Britain's new prime minister. Replacing Joffre was Robert Nevel, a younger, more energetic man whose near-limitless optimism was a welcome change after the hellfires of the previous year. Nevel intended to make his mark early. He informed Haig he had no intention of following Joff's plans, and instead went to work promoting his own offensive. An offensive, which Nevel boasted, could end the war in 48 hours. Nevel's plan called for a major push in Artois along the Chamy des Dames Ridge, which runs parallel to the Enne River between Reims and Soissons. Using what he had learned at Verdun, Nevel hoped to smash the German lines using concentrated artillery in the latest gunnery techniques. These techniques called for the use of rolling artillery fire to cut deep lines in the German defenses, thereby establishing corridors for the infantry to surge through. Nevel had used these techniques to great effect at Verdun, and looked to apply them to a much longer front. Despite concerns from his own staff and government, Nevel was determined to push ahead. This conviction would soon win him Lloyd George's support. Nevel and Lloyd George first met in January 1917 during the Inter-Allied Summit held in Rome. Lloyd George looked to reduce Britain's commitment to the Western Front, and proposed a plan to send British divisions to aid the Italians in their struggle against the Austrians. This plan found little traction among the delegation. Not only was it logistically unsound, but the rift it would have left in Anglo-French relations would have severely undermined the Entente's integrity. Not to be deterred, Lloyd George found an ally in Nevel, and was enamored by what the Frenchmen had to say. Nevel's plan appealed to Lloyd George for two reasons. The first was Nevel's confident command of the English language. This was a welcome shift from Joffre's broken English and Haig's less articulate command style. The second reason was that Nevel planned for the French to do the heavy lifting. This, coupled with Nevel's insistence of a 48-hour victory, meant the war could be decided without another Somme-like campaign. Lloyd George was desperate for any good news, and what he heard from Nevel fit the bill well. However, not everyone reveled in Nevel's confidence. Haig remained pessimistic, believing an attack along the Chamy des Dames would not produce decisive results. Haig's alternative was to launch a separate offensive in Flanders, aimed at clearing the U-boat pens along the Belgian coast. Nevel Lloyd George, and Haig thus disagreed over the direction of the Spring Offensive. The Battle of Arras in April 1917 was the result of a compromise between these three men. It began with an interview Haig had given to French reporters in February. Haig was quoted to have said that 1917 would, quote, see the decision of the war on the field of battle, end quote. 
Given Haig's commitment to the Western Front, his words were seen as a criticism of Lloyd George, who was still feeling the sting from the disappointment in Rome. Whether Haig intentionally meant to throw salt at the Prime Minister remains a matter of debate. Certainly, his word choice was clumsy, but when the interview was published in Britain, it widened the gulf between the politicians and generals. This rift would culminate at the Calais Conference on February 23rd. The Calais Conference was a meeting between Anglo-French military and political leaders. Its purpose was to hammer out the logistical details related to Naval's campaign. By this point, the French had only secured partial support from the British, and it was at Calais where the disagreements between Lloyd George, Haig, and Naval came to a head. In short, Lloyd George and Naval wanted to subordinate British forces under French command for the upcoming offensive. This would have neutered Haig and left him in little more than a support role. Haig threatened to resign, but was stayed when the king intervened and ordered the two men to find an amicable solution. A compromise was reached in the end. Haig would retain control of the BEF, but was expected to conform to French plans by launching attacks that would assist the French in Artois. Thus, the Battle of Arras was born. The Battle of Arras would be Britain's contribution to Naval's offensive. It was not a battle the British had wanted, but was rendered necessary by the demands of coalition warfare. Its purpose was to draw German reserves away from Artois by launching limited bite-and-hold operations along the high ground east of the city. It would be the BEF's first major set piece of 1917. With the French set to attack on April the 16th, the Arras operations would commence one week earlier, on Easter Monday, April 9th. The city of Arras is located in the Pas de Calais of northeastern France. Like the Somme, the surrounding countryside is predominantly flat with little tree coverage. The soil is composed primarily of chalk, which made it excellent for digging and underground warfare. Historically, mortar and clay were its biggest exports, a result of the Scarpe and Crichon rivers which flow to the north and south. Before the war, Arras made its name as a mining town, earning the nickname the White City. It was also the birthplace of everyone's favorite human rights activist, Maximilien Robespierre. Unlike the Somme prior to July 1st, the area around Arras had seen heavy fighting since 1914, most of it being fought over the two prominent heights, the Notre Dame de Lorette to the north and the imposing 145-meter-high Vimy Ridge, which dominates the battlefield and its surrounding valleys. The Germans had seized the Vimy Ridge in 1914, and had held it against numerous French counterattacks. By 1917, Arras was an active sector on the Western Front. Although it had not seen major operations since 1915, trench raids and mine warfare were its defining features. The British had three armies positioned in the area. First Army, commanded by Henry Horn, Third Army, commanded by General Edmund Allaby, and Fifth Army, commanded by Herbert Goff. 
the BEF's plan at Eris was relatively simple. 14 divisions would attack across a 23-kilometer front. Horn's 1st Army would attack north of the city against the Vimy Ridge. Allenby's 3rd Army would strike east of Eris, capture the heights near Monchy le Preux, and outflank the German defenses to the south, thereby securing the road to Cambrai. Goff's 5th Army was in a supplemental role, but we will come back to that a bit later. In the meantime, the BEF had spent the winter of 1916-1917 reorganizing and implementing the hard-learned lessons from the Somme. A new training manual was introduced, along with a new officer curriculum which emphasized greater flexibility of command. First, third, and fifth armies were all reinforced with fresh troops from Kitchener's army, whose training was reinforced by the experiences of Somme veterans. Like on the Somme, artillery would play an integral role. And here, there were vast improvements from the previous summer. British gunners were now technologically adept professionals. Shell production had improved, and the introduction of a new shell fuse cut down on the number of duds. Improvements to counter-battery work, such as sound ranging and flash spotting, meant the artillery at Eris would be far deadlier than it had been on July 1st. The BEF had amassed a greater number of guns, 2,827 pieces, which included 963 heavies. This worked out to one gun every 21 meters. On the Somme, it had been one gun every 57 meters. In all, the opening bombardment at Eris promised to be three times as strong, three times as accurate, and three times as lethal than that of July 1st. The opening bombardment commenced on April the 4th. For five days, British guns pounded the German lines, with a record 2.7 million shells. In the Canadian and British sectors, the shelling destroyed some 86% of the German batteries. It collapsed trenches, dugouts, and cut communication wires. A report from the Bavarian Reserve Regiment atop Vimy Ridge describes the effects of the intensive shelling. Quote, the enemy artillery fire and its effects have increased day after day. For the most part, the trench lines have been flattened, to such an extent that they are simply crater fields. Due to the crushing and burying of the dugouts, there has been an extraordinary reduction in the ability to provide protected accommodation for the troops. End quote. At 5.30 in the morning on April the 9th, the guns fell silent and the attack went in. The Battle of Eris had begun. The weather on the morning of April the 9th was terrible. An icy wind blew a mixture of sleet and snow in all directions. This time, however, the unsavory conditions favored the attackers. Despite the hurricane bombardment, the Germans had not anticipated an attack. As a result, many Germans in the front trenches were taken prisoner half-dressed, some with shaving cream on their faces and hot food still on the stove. On 1st Army's front, the Canadian Corps began their long slog up the Vimy Ridge. The Canadian Corps consisted of four Canadian divisions and was commanded by British General Julian Bing. 
For the first time, all four Canadian divisions fought side by side. They advanced across a 7-kilometer front and were aided by eight tanks. The Canadians advanced steadily, hugging the creeping barrage which lifted every three minutes. On the right, brigades of 1st and 2nd Divisions advanced 4,000 meters and captured their objectives at They Lose and Farpu. 3rd Division, meanwhile, stormed the German lines at La Folie Farm. On the extreme left, however, men from 4th Division encountered stiffer resistance. 4th Division was tasked with capturing Hill 145, the highest point on the ridge. The Germans had spent the past two years reinforcing this prized piece of real estate. From atop Hill 145, the Germans had excellent view of the Canadian lines, as well as the Douai Plain to the east. As such, the defenses at Hill 145 were noticeably stronger. Trenches and reinforced dugouts ringed its base, making any approach to this position extremely hazardous. Fortunately for the Canadians, the opening bombardment and subsequent creeping barrage aided their approach. The lead battalions were able to establish themselves along 145's crest, but German machine guns kept them from pushing on for most of the afternoon. Casualties were high. All the officers from the 11th Brigade's 102nd Battalion were killed or wounded, leaving the attack in the hands of a company sergeant. The fighting around Hill 145 continued well into the evening. It was finally secured in the early hours of April 10th, when reinforcements from 10th Brigade helped push the attack on in. By the afternoon of April 10th, the length of the Vimy Ridge had been taken, and the Canadians had advanced to a depth of 4,000 meters. However, it took another two days before the last of the German defenses were subdued. The last German holdouts atop Vimy Ridge were concentrated in 4th Division sector, on the extreme left, at a spot known as Hill 120, a knoll which the British had nicknamed the Pimple. The Pimple had been one of the most active spots on the ridge. Both sides had engaged in mine warfare for the better part of a year, which left the ground near the Pimple a latticework of overlapping craters. By April 10th, the Bavarians defending the Pimple were left low on supplies and manpower. Constant artillery fire had smashed their positions, leaving huge craters full of mud, body parts, and freezing cold water. 4th Division resumed the attack at 4 o'clock in the morning on April 12th. Here, the attackers were aided by a snowstorm which blinded the Bavarian gunners. The assault on the Pimple was led by 10th Brigade, consisting of 44th, 50th, and 46th Battalions, who stormed the position with bayonets and grenades. It took less than an hour to secure the crest of the Pimple. However, heavy fighting would continue until the evening. By 5 p.m. on April the 12th, the Bavarians withdrew. The Vimy Ridge had fallen. In all, it took the Canadian Corps 72 hours to take a position the Germans had held for 28 months, an impressive achievement no matter which way you cut it. The assault had cost the Canadian Corps 
10,600 men either killed or wounded, with the German losses between 7 to 9,000. There were a number of factors which made the assault on Vimy a success, all of which can be boiled down to effective staff work and meticulous planning. Julian Bing had trained his men obsessively in the months leading up to the assault. Scale models were constructed, and the attack was rehearsed down to the finest detail. Regardless of rank, each soldier knew their objectives to the letter. The Canadians had also made use of the extensive underground tunnel system which honeycombed the ridge. These tunnels, which were first dug by the French and expanded upon by the British, were a decisive factor in the operation's success. These underground labyrinths were well lit and provisioned with supply depots, aid stations, and communication outposts. The longest tunnel measured over 1,800 meters and could house over 20,000 men. Not only did these tunnels allow the Canadians to approach the battle zone unseen, their reinforced walls protected the communication lines, which gave Bing and his staff tighter control of the battle. Not surprisingly, the Battle of Vimy Ridge has become embedded in Canada's popular memory. It remains to this day Canada's most celebrated military achievement, and is often hailed as a cornerstone in its national development. The Vimy Monument, perched atop Hill 145, is perhaps the most famous of the Great War monuments, drawing thousands of visitors each year since it was unveiled in 1936. I visited it in 2011. It was an awesome experience, and I recommend anyone else to do the same, once it becomes safe to travel again, of course. But Vimy has also fallen victim to national myth-making and hyperbole. Now, being a Canadian myself, I can confirm that each year, popular narrative describes Vimy Ridge as a decisive battle, one in which the Canadians somehow unlocked the magic recipe for success on the Western Front. Not to take anything away from the men who sacrificed during those cold April days, but the capture of Vimy Ridge was not decisive. The Germans would not try to reclaim it until 1918, and it played no further role in the fighting around Arras. It would, however, prove its value during the German counteroffensives the following year. Furthermore, Vimy Ridge was not solely a Canadian effort. Most of the infantry that attacked were Canadian as were three of four divisional commanders. But the attack would not have been possible without the British artillery, engineers, and supply units that supported them. Not to mention, the technological developments that were unavailable to the French and British in years prior. Nonetheless, the Canadian efforts at Vimy cannot be ignored, and the Canadian Corps emerged from the battle with a growing reputation as one of the best units in the Allied arsenal. While the capture of Vimy Ridge was certainly a cause for celebration, it has often overshadowed the equally successful achievements of the Third Army in the South, where General Allenby's men pushed along the main roads to Douai and Cambrai. Like Vimy Ridge, the advance here was remarkably successful, best exemplified by the achievements of 4th and 9th Scottish divisions. These divisions captured six kilometers of German trenches in the opening assaults, representing the longest single advance since the beginning of trench warfare. Fourth and Ninth Divisions 
went into action north of the Scarp. The attack battalions were aided by a smokescreen, which allowed them to cross no man's land and capture their objectives with minimal casualties. These early objectives included the village of Saint Laurent and the crucial Eris Lens railway hub southeast of the village. Meanwhile, to the south, the 12th and 15th Scottish divisions, part of 6th Corps, advanced east of Arras. Making use of underground tunnels and supported by nine heavy artillery batteries, which included a 15-inch naval cannon, the 12th and 15th achieved complete tactical surprise. The lead battalions surged forward and swept down the slope of a nearby ridge. There, the fighting was concentrated on two important ridges, Telegraph Ridge and Observation Ridge. After taking Observation Ridge, 36th and 37th Brigades of 12th Division continued forward. Down the reverse slope of Observation Ridge lay Battery Valley, roughly 2,500 meters behind the German line. Upon reaching Battery Valley, 36th and 37th Brigades were greeted with a unique sight. Dozens of German field guns lay in the open. Some were abandoned, while others continued to fire point-blank into the British infantry. However, the speed of the British advance had caught the Germans flat-footed. Upon seeing the crest of Observation Ridge lined with enemy infantry, the remaining Germans took off and ran, abandoning their guns in the process. The British battalions surged down the hill and captured 67 guns along with a significant number of prisoners. In all, the first three days of the Battle of Arras went surprisingly well, especially when compared to July the 1st. By April the 12th, most of the initial objectives had been taken, and the men were eager to push on. On April 11th, Allenby dispatched the following order to Third Army, saying, quote, Third Army is now pursuing a defeated enemy, and risks must be freely taken. End quote. But while the opening phase had been a success, the situation had begun to change by the evening of April 12th. Snowstorms had grounded the RFC, which prevented British staff from obtaining an accurate view of the battle lines. Furthermore, the German general, Ludwig von Falkenhausen, was dismissed by Ludendorff after failing to utilize the defense in depth. As the BEF hauled artillery, supplies, and shell across a now lunar landscape, Falkenhausen's replacement, Colonel von Losberg, went to work reorganizing his defenses further east. The German rally was quick and deadly, best exemplified when a large number of cavalrymen and horses were shot down behind Monchy le Pew. Such was the character of the Western Front. Once an attack had gotten underway, it was incredibly difficult to maintain. The initial momentum slowed as the attackers were forced to recalibrate. Men needed rest, shells needed replenishing, guns needed reciting, and communication lines had to be secured. However, the achievements of April 9th and 12th had a cascading effect. So for now, let us move south once again and look at what happened with Herbert Goff and 5th Army. In the south, Herbert Goff's 5th Army, consisting of five corps and the 1st Anzacs, 
was positioned across Bullacore. Sensing an opportunity to tighten the screws, Goff proposed an attack against Bullacore. The germ of this operation likely stems from a junior officer, possibly a tank commander, who had boasted about the machine's performance in the north. In any event, the attack of Bullacore was hastily planned and without much appreciation of the tactical realities. Unlike 1st and 3rd Army, 5th Army was positioned opposite a reinforced section of the Hindenburg Line. Not only would Goff's men have to cross the old German line, but also these new elastic defenses. Not only that, but during the evacuation to the Hindenburg Line, the Germans had vacated a large salient around Bapalm. This meant they were no longer defending on three sides, and could now focus on defeating any attack piecemeal. Goff's fortunes were not helped by the fact that the German defenders at Bullecourt, the 27th Infantry Division, were some of the best defensive fighters the Germans had to offer. Unfortunately, Goff failed to see how these developments should have altered his plan. Despite heavy criticism from his staff, Goff was determined to plow ahead. Encouraged by the success of First and Third Army, Goff was convinced the Germans would retreat, and that a handful of tanks would be able to compensate for the lack of artillery. To lead this charge, Goff turned to the 12th and 4th Australian Brigades, part of the 4th Australian Division. The Australians were to be aided by 12 tanks, alongside the British 62nd Division. The attack on Bullecourt got off to an inauspicious start. The initial attack, scheduled for April the 10th, was delayed for 24 hours when several tanks failed to reach the marshalling yard. But due to a communication mix-up, news of the postponement did not reach the British 62nd Division, which sent in battalions from the West Yorkshire Regiment without proper tank or artillery support. Remarkably, the Yorkshires were able to make it to the wire before having to pull back. At this point, Goff should have had the foresight to cancel the attack. The Germans were alert, and were now actively probing the British lines. But time was of the essence, and so the attack continued. Goff's generalship was poor, but the weather that day wrecked havoc on the tanks. Goff originally planned for 12 tanks, but when the attack began at 4.30 in the morning on April 11th, only three made it to the rallying point. Of those three, none made it past the German wire. The results of this mismanagement had the Australians advance into no man's land devoid of tanks or artillery. The Australians had spent the past 24 hours waiting in the cold trenches sheltering from the snow in frozen dugouts and sunken lanes. Despite this, the Australians defied the odds. The first German line was captured, with some units even achieving a foothold in the second line. However, the early optimism was not to last. As mentioned earlier, the German unit at Bullecourt, the 27th Infantry Division, were specialists in the defensive battle. When the Australians reached the inner crust of the line, the 27th unleashed a ferocious counterattack. They poured into Australian-occupied trenches through the sides and centre, popping out of deep shelters and hidden entry points. 
the fighting was chaotic and brutal, with hand grenades, bayonets, and rifle butts being the weapon of choice. Eventually, momentum swung in the defenders' favor. The Germans worked systematically. They choked off the Australian escape routes until they were surrounded and broken into isolated pockets. Overwhelmed by the counterattacks and running desperately short on ammunition, the Australians made a desperate retreat. This required them to not only fight their way past trenches retaken by the Germans, but across the shell-swept hellscape of no man's land, which was now being pounded by German artillery. Some never made it, and those who stayed behind were cut off and taken prisoner. The attack on Bullecourt fizzled out after just seven hours. The Australians had fought well, but they were given a hopeless task. Their losses were also enormous. 12th Brigade lost nearly half its strength, while 4th Brigade had been virtually wiped out. Of 4th Brigade's strength of 3,000 men, only 661 made it out. These losses were further compounded by 1,182 officers and men taken prisoner. As a result of this sorry episode, the Australians grew ever more suspicious of British generalship, and Bullock Corps was added to their list of frustrations, alongside Gallipoli, Fromel, and Pozier. The attack on Bullock Corps was an objective failure, but the triumphs of 1st and 3rd Army in the North demonstrates that the BEF had made considerable improvements from the first day of the Somme. Careful staff work and meticulous preparation made the opening 72 hours at Arras one of the BEF's most successful operations of the war thus far. Unfortunately, the accomplishments of April 9th and 12th were not to be repeated. The Battle of Arras was not over, and the fighting would continue for another six weeks. This begs an important question. Why did the battle continue after the 12th? Remember, the whole point was to divert German reserves away from the French, and having completed their objectives by the 12th, Haig would have been justified in suspending it. Many historians, such as Philip Warner and Andrew Weist, have argued Haig should have stopped the battle on the 12th. After all, the BEF had held up their end of the bargain. But a counter-argument, put forth by Gary Sheffield, suggests that Haig may not have had a choice. The Nivelle Offensive was not scheduled to begin for another four days, and Haig understood the need to maintain as much pressure on the Germans as possible. On April 24th, the BEF would attack again north of the Scarp, and add another kilometer to their total. Another attempt in May yielded similar results. In short, the reason Eris dragged on as long as it did was because Nevel's offensive, which we're going to talk about next day, proved a major disappointment. Elements of the French army mutinied in the days that followed, which required the British to keep up the attack as the French dealt with the crisis. When the Battle of Eris finally ended on May the 16th, the losses on all sides were enormous. The British lost almost 160,000 men in a single month, while German losses are estimated between 120,000 and 130,000. The Canadian Corps lost 11,000 men in the three-day fight for Vimy Ridge, 
while Third Army suffered 8,238 casualties in their march to Monchy Le Pew. Next episode, we will flip over to the French side of things. Robert Nevel's much-anticipated offensive was about to begin. Hailed as the offensive that would win the war in 48 hours, it instead ruined Nevel's reputation and left the French army on the brink of disaster. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. That again is at Great War Podcast or thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been episode 74 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.